This is a Federal News Network podcast. The great flywheel of appropriations gets a big shove today with release of the administration's 2023 budget request six months before fiscal 2023 actually starts. That's not all in the way of spending that Congress will be thinking about, though, as we hear from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, let's start with that budget release months late, but it's always some sort of a landmark day in D.C. for the people that think that's what constitutes a landmark day. (laughs) That's right. It's landing with a big thud today. And whatever the final figures turn out to be as Congress moves this through, it's clear that the Pentagon is going to get a sizable chunk of this federal funding. The White House wants well north of $750 billion, looking for around 4% increase over the current fiscal year. And it's really tens of billions of dollars more than what was originally projected about a year ago. Of course, a lot has changed since then, with growing concerns about Russia's attacks on Ukraine, continuing concerns among lawmakers about China, there's going to be a big push from Pentagon supporters here in Congress to provide even more money. Forty lawmakers, Republicans, have written the administration seeking about a 5% increase. I think you're going to see that annual look at the defense budget where they're going to say, nope, we need more. On the other hand, the Senate Armed Services Committee Chair Jack Reed has indicated he's not ready to quite hand over a blank check, although he's pretty strong, as you know, on defense and wants a strategy to drive the budget and not the other way around. But either way, I think we're going to see a lot of dollars flowing the Pentagon's way. Well, it will be interesting to see if one of those strategies is arm Taiwan to the teeth. (laughs) Right. It very well could be. I mean, we've heard a lot of talk about that, especially given what's happening with Ukraine. And Congress is still very much involved with Ukraine. You spoke with a couple of the local senators this week, and what were they saying on that? That's right. I spoke to Senator Tim Kaine and Senator Mark Warner. Of course, Mark Warner is the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator Kaine, a member of the Armed Services Committee. Both of them say the U.S. really needs to be committed to keeping the aid and support military aid flowing to the NATO allies. Of course, we had the president visiting with those allies over the weekend, and Kane told me that he doesn't think the U.S. can just sit back and assume that Vladimir Putin won't attack a NATO ally at some point. So he says that means more resources. For example, uh, talking about locally, Virginia, the Virginia-based, Norfolk-based aircraft carrier Harry Truman is actually conducting airborne patrols with NATO allied forces and the Sixth Fleet in that general region. So he is, Senator Kane is very concerned about what's happening there. Uh, NATO has doubled the number of military jets that are on alert in Europe. So these two Virginia lawmakers, knowing what a big part of the military it is to the Commonwealth, are uh, very bullish on making sure that the support for NATO continues. And also an ongoing concern, Senator Warner, being with intelligence, as you know, has always been very concerned about cyber attacks. We've heard a little bit more about that recently. And he has concerns that if the tripwire isn't actually specifically identified, it, it could get a little dicey in terms of if there is a cyber attack by Russia on the U.S. or one of its allies. And so that's a complicated thing that he is keeping a very close eye on. Right. When they formed NATO, nobody envisioned the idea of cyber attacks. But if it's an attack, if it shuts down or does damage in a nation, 
than it's as potent and can be as a bomb dropping somewhere. Exactly. And he's actually surprised that the Russians haven't done this more with Ukraine, which is not a NATO member. But as he points out, you know, there could be an attack on military equipment and uh, facility in Poland, for example, or another NATO country where jets are flying out. Or maybe it's uh, just a matter of going after an energy facility. And then that raises the question, well, is that an Article 5, as they say, attack on NATO, which immediately causes a response from NATO and generally has been agreed to that it would be a military response. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And on the domestic front, there's actually discussion from Joe Manchin, you're reporting, of a somehow slimmed down Build Back Better bill? That's right. Build Back Better has effectively been dead now for many months, but there's a little bit of life being breathed into it. Uh, There was a report last week that Senator Manchin has been talking with some groups about maybe trying to get this back to, as you indicated, a more slimmed down version. This is very early, very preliminary, and uh, Manchin has continually been open to things as we've gone through this. But as you know, he's also put a stake in it, too, for the White House when they wanted $3.5 trillion. What they're now talking about, reportedly, is around $1.5 trillion. Manchin indicated to Axios last week that he'd be willing to consider things that would relate to climate change, perhaps reducing the deficit, and then lowering prescription drug prices, which is very popular among Democrats. However, this does not include a lot of things that progressive Democrats have been seeking, such as expanded child care and mandatory pre-K. So we'll see where this goes. It's interesting that we're this far into the year, and because of everything internationally that we just talked about, a lot of these domestic agenda items have been kind of put on the back burner, uh, in part because the Build Back Better plan just didn't go anywhere several months ago. Well, we'll have to see how that develops. That's likely to be, though, after the elections, right, before anything could really get any momentum. Exactly. You put your finger on it. With the elections coming up, I just don't see this really getting any kind of momentum. And what's going on with respect to gasoline relief? I saw something about California going to give people like, I don't know, Elon Musk, I guess, does he still live there, a a (laughs) gas card (laughs) or something or Could that happen at the federal level? Well, there is talk. And speaking of the midterm elections, uh, there's a lot of nervousness, obviously, among Democrats about what can be done about these rising gas prices. So there are all kinds of proposals being floated now. And one of them that comes from uh, Congressman Mike Thompson of California, where the gas prices are sky high, is one, along with other Democrats, it would give a $100 energy rebate payment to Americans any month during when the national gas price average is more than $4 a gallon, which of course it is now. And kind of like other rebates in the past, it would go up if you were a family with two children, you could get up to $300 a month. And then there are some more complicated proposals. One of them, Rokana, also from California, not surprisingly, has suggested raising taxes on oil companies. And then through a complicated series of machinations, you would get a rebate of potentially close to $250 a year if you're a single filer and higher for joint filers. Um, There are other proposals. Peter DeFazio from Oregon, who's obviously been very involved with uh, infrastructure and transportation issues over the years. He has a bill that would do something similar with oil companies. So there really is a scramble here by lawmakers to try to do something to help consumers. I'm still mad when high test went above 39 cents. That's how long (laughs) I've been driving. And we're talking about $5 or $6.39. Crazy. And what about anything happening on the 
confirmations front because that was going for a while there in the Senate. It looks like basically a week from today, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to vote on the Supreme Court nominee's confirmation. It is likely to be split right down the middle. Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Democrats felt that she did a good job during her tough two days of questioning and hearings all last week. Uh, Republicans had uh, their own reservations about it. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell indicating late last week that he will not support, uh, not surprising there. So what we're shaping up there is probably one of the closest, if not the closest, Senate vote ever on a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, The previous nominees, it was a space of a couple of votes here and there for Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. But this one could actually come down to the vote by the vice president. We'll just have to see if any other Republicans decide to join with Democrats. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.